The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Colossians chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 8 this afternoon, but I'd like to begin reading back in verse 1 where we were this morning. This really is God's word given to you, that you would know him, love him, and have a life transformed by him. So please give it your full attention as it's read in your hearing this afternoon. Inspired word of God says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old man with its practices, and you've put on the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Well, this is indeed the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Before we go uh, to prayer, let's continue to uh, keep uh, two different families in mind. Uh, First, be praying for the Sangsters. And uh, for the Knowles family as they uh, just work with Paul's health difficulties. And then uh, be keeping the Kinemers in your prayer. They are coming back from Alabama um, after Jeremy's mom died and they went through her thing. So pray for them as a family. Uh, One, as they process the death of a close loved one. And then secondly, as they uh, drive back here, that they would make it back here safely. So let's go to God in prayer. Our Father, we, we have to ask a question of ourselves quite often when we are tempted to go astray. Where else would we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. We pray, God, that we be that self-reflective when temptation lures and pulls at the heart or at the mind that we would confess again to ourselves only you have eternal life. Therefore, only you should be pursued and worshipped. We pray that you would be with the members of our church that are in the midst of difficulty. We do pray for Pastor Brian and for Ariel that they'd enjoy some time away. And as they turn this page in their life, and grieve the loss of D, that you would be the God of all comfort to them. We pray for uh, the Sangsters 
and for the Knowles as they um, walk with Paul through a difficult season. And we pray, O oh God, that you would aid and assist our brother and these families. We pray for the Kinemers that you would be the God of all comfort to them as they grieve the loss of Jeremy's mother. God, keep them safe as they journey back, and we pray that you would return them to us safely. As we open your word, we pray that it would run freely through our hearts and change us and transform us more into the likeness and image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you, uh, you don't mean to be funny, but you're funny accidentally. I guess you have. Uh, I had that experience this last week. I, 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 in passing, made a comment to Carolyn, and Charlie was there overhearing, about how my sermons have gotten progressively shorter. And she laughed, and so did Charlie. And I said, no, 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 they've gotten shorter. And they called my bluff, and sermon audio doesn't lie. And Charlie and Carolyn were right. So we're going to aim for getting done on time, and if not, I know Jason will just walk out. One in disgust, too, because he's got to get to work. So we're going to be done by 2.15 this afternoon. Those of you who know me know uh, that I'm not shy about the fact that I am a native-born Northwesterner. I know that may not seem like a big deal to you, but that just means you are not cultured and don't understand greatness when it's faced to you. Also, it's less believable now that I've cut my beard. You're like, you know, how good could it be? Really? Uh, but that means that, that, that I have diesel fuel and sawdust that runs through my veins. And while I can choose where I live and love living in Nevada, you're always you, you can't change where you're from. You can change where you live, but you can, can never change where you're from. My apologies to those who are from California. So, but that background, it plays in the back of your mind, doesn't it? How you were raised and where you're from. So, so no matter kind of where God has taken me, whether it was the time I lived in New Zealand or the time that I sojourned in the People's Republic of California for six years or uh, when I lived in Oregon or in Nevada, now like always in the back of my mind, there was this filter through which just all of life was lived. And I was like, I'm a hick through and through and that's just how I see life. I'm also secondarily a native born legalist or fundamentalist. I was born with a native religion. And don't judge me, you were born with the same one. We are all born as sinners in this world and we've believed from the earliest times that I can work my way towards God. That that somehow the way that I live can buy, purchase, earn, merit, whichever word you want to use to describe it, that I can obtain favor because of who I am and what I do. Now, just like me being born in the Northwest, that native religion, don't you find it running in the background of your minds? I guess I'm the only one here. So I'll just tell you what it's like. It is so easy for me to take a wonderful text of Scripture and turn it into what was grace and a hope and mercy I can now 
because of the perverseness of my own thinking, view it as weight, law, duty, burden. I, I, I can do that in almost any text of Scripture. The reason I bring this up, number one, I think we should be aware of it and fight against it. Number two, the text in front of us this afternoon, even as you heard it read, you're going, I should have gone home after lunch. This is not going to be good. It would be so easy to look at this list and beat ourselves with it. Be easy for me to preach it in a way that just beat you with it. Be easy for you as a listener to just whip yourself with it. I want to tell you there's a way to see this text that is full of hope. You might say, are we looking at the same text? Yes, we're looking at the same text. Look at the first, I guess it's three words, of, chap- of verse 5, and then we're going to drop down to uh, verse 8. Put to death, and then drop down to verse 8. Put away. You might say, how is this hope? There's so much hope in this text because these things that Paul, that Paul enumerates for us are actually things that can be put to death. Look at this list with that in your mind. These are actually things that you can, by God's grace and his spirit at work in you, can actually put them away. There's so much hope there. Now, the topics are not pleasant, If they were pleasant, I think they'd be very easy to put away. They're not. These are serious matters that we need to wrestle with, but I don't want to miss the forest of hope given our native-born legalism or fundamentalism. See what the new birth in Christ does in your life. You don't have to be in bondage to these things. You can put them away. There is so much freedom in the Son of God. They can be put to death. I think there's hope in that. As a sinner who wrestles with sin, there is so much hope because the lies that we tend to believe, we imbibe them, we drink them down, go something like this. I've always been like this. This will never change. I'm the one who doesn't fit. No one else wrestles with these things. I'm always... Bully. Paul says, now in Christ you can put it to death. Now in Christ you can put them away. Please hear this list in the context of grace that I believe it is set in. It's set in the context of verse 1 of chapter 3. You've been raised with Christ. Therefore, in that newness of life, we must put these things away. Or as John 8, 36 says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So we need to stop believing that these things are always going to mark us, or that by somehow acquiescing or molding ourselves to them, that they would then merit favor for us. In the gospel, I think we've got to be really clear with this, you have God's favor. He loves you. As the sinner that's ruined by sin that you are, 
This doesn't buy you more of his love. It's the living out of the life that you have in him. It's so desperately important, brothers and sisters, that we get it that way around. Rather than saying, here's a list of stuff I can do so that he loves me more. No, this is, these are wonderful, gracious gifts from God calling us out of sin into light, saying, follow me in the light, in the life that I've given you. You don't have to be slave to these things any longer. So we want to consider this list under two major headings, and each of the headings have five subpoints under them. The reason I did that is because if I told you we have ten points today, the whole bit about the short sermon would get thrown out the window. But there's just two. That doesn't seem scary. Just two points. The first is five vices that need to be put to death. The second would be five sins that need to be put to death. You might say, what's the difference between a sin and a vice? Nothing. It's a ten-point sermon. I'm sorry. We'll just launch into it. Number one, five vices to put to death. Look at verse five with me. Put to death, therefore. Keep the therefore right, right there, pulling you from the, the, uh, the truths of the gospel, the indicatives, into now the imperatives. So who you are in Christ, the new creation that God uh, has brought you into, and you are a part of, hidden in Christ, will be revealed on the last day. That's the context. You're a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are part of that new creation that is dawning and unfolding upon the earth and into eternity. That is what you are part of in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. So your identity, for lack of a better term, must be firmly anchored there. I'm going to argue that too often so much of our identity is, is derived from our sin rather than what God has done for us. That's why I'm adamantly against with those identifying under the title of what their sin is. No, you're a Christian. Now live in the light of that. So Paul says, <coughs> if then... And that would, the if and the then would be deriving right off the foundation of the gospel. If then, there, or if therefore, you've been saved and brought into new life, put to death what is earthly among your members. So this idea of putting it to death, it, it is not a tame, it's not a tame word. He's not saying gently, lovingly guide, correct, trim, reel in. It's, these are not fishing terminologies. Put it to death. Kill it. You might say, what does it say in the Greek? Kill it. That's what it says. And he pulls no punches in the severity and the seriousness that we must deal with sin in our life. We we too often are slack-handed in the way that we deal with our sin. Much harder on other people's sin, a little, little more uh, easy going on my own. Paul says, listen, when it comes to the sin in your life, deal death blows to it. Or as Owen would say, when you were to, if you were to get into an altercation with a viper, you wouldn't think one or two slight whacks with a stick will do it. You want to make sure that it's dead. So you 
whack it until it stops moving, and then a little extra to make sure. That was way more graphic than I thought it would be. But this word, it, it, it describes the, way the, the Christian's new relationship with the sin that once dominated their life. They put it to death. So one commentator says, we live with the recognition that one, as one who has already been set free from the power of sin, and so now sin can, for the first time in your life, be put to death. Those who are under sin's bondage and sin's rule and sin's domain, they're not putting sin to death. They are enslaved to sin. But when the Son makes you free, makes you alive in himself and dead to, to self and to the law and to all these other things, excuse me, you are now able to, for the first time, grow in your obedience with God. What a wonderful gift. Rather than this burden that we need to view it, it's just like, oh, golly, I gotta... For the first time, you can actually put to death the sin that, we won't sugarcoat it, would destroy you. You can actually deal with Death blows by God's grace towards it. What a gift. What a grace. What hope is found in and through this entire passage. He says, put together the, uh, what is earthly. Some will say earthly members. The idea is the, the members of our body that, with which we sin. You might say like, oh, I always knew it was uh, environmental. That's my problem. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you're Man, your, your mouth too often is used by, by the enemy. Your hands too often do the enemy's work. Your feet too often. And so he's saying, in the ways in which you sin, in the normal mundane parts of life, in those nitty-gritty areas, we need to put these things to death. Now, Paul will then launch into a first set of five with an explanation of why these things would be put to death. And then in, uh, to verse seven, he'll actually shift over into the old man, new man distinction, and then another list of, of five. Now, he doesn't expound much on them. And so I will actually uh, not spend uh, too much time unpacking each and every one of them in part to reflect the way that Paul deals with it. Paul doesn't give a huge discourse on what exactly these things are. He gives them, I mean, just one right after the other in rapid-fire succession, knowing that, uh, well, we know what he's talking about. And so the first that it comes to uh, the list of things that are put to death is sexual immorality. Now, the word that Paul uses for sexual immorality, just to be very, very clear about it, it's any sexual intercourse that is outside the fireplace of marriage. If someone were to ask you, um, is a fire in your house a good thing? You would say, well, that depends. Is it in the fireplace or is it not in the fireplace? I, I think fires in the fireplace, fantastic. Like I said, I was a hick. That's how we eat in our house. Uh, any room outside of that little specific place uh, is destructive. The word that Paul uses is a word for sex outside, outside the context of one man and one woman 
in marriage covenant together, anything outside of that is to be put to death. You can see families torn apart by this. You can see marriages torn apart by this. You can see lives destroyed by this. Marriage is a beautiful, wonderful gift from God to us. It was, this might shock some, it was his idea. Involving all the things that go along with marriage, it was something over which God said, good. Every perversion of that, the Christian is to leave behind and have nothing to do with. There's, there's not a whole lot more to say about it than that. If you want to destroy your life, fiddle around with sexual sin. It'll destroy your life. And it won't just impact you, it will impact tons of people around you. Paul says, you're a Christian. You've been raised with Christ. Your life is hid with Christ. Therefore, this all-sufficient Savior which is also an all-consuming Savior, he has the right, and I'm going to tell you, he has the only right to tell you what you can and cannot do with your body. You might say, no one can tell me what to do with my body. Uh, Christ can. Yeah, he's the Lord and King and Creator of you and your body. So he has the right, the only right. You might say, well, I don't like what he said. I don't care. He has the right to say, All iterations that aren't one man, one woman in marriage covenant is sinful. Second word he uses in this list of things to be put off, these vices that so easily ensnare that should be put off, is impurity. You can understand quickly uh, that uh, there would be, another translation would say uncleanness or impurity is what the ESV says, I believe. It means if the first one was any sexual intercourse outside of marriage, which would have encompassed quite a few categories uh, that we would have read about and called us to worship from Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which I'm thankful we don't do that anymore. But this word would describe uh, all sexual indecency or immoral conduct, right? So, So if one would be intercourse that is outside the limits of the Bible, there, this would be all impurities or uncleanness or indecencies that surround that. You would know what these would be. Gazing upon things that you have no right to gaze upon. Thinking about things that you have no right to think on. To let the heart and lust run rampant. Paul says, Christian. Put it to death. Put it to death. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. These masters are not to be master over you anymore. So all forms. And and while you might say, I kind of wish Paul would have been a little more specific. I, I actually think there's something to him being broad and sweeping Is there not in the world that we live a broad, sweeping amount of opportunities for impurity and uncleanness? Yeah, this word would encompass all of that. Paul says, Christian, 
deal death blows to it. Don't coddle it. Don't nurture it. Don't uh, hide it away. Deal death blows to it. You're a new creature. Third word he uses is a word uh, that ESV translates uh, passions. Now, uh, there's two sorts of different ways in which this could be understood. And because there is not a lot of contextual evidence within this, I mean, it shows up in a list. Lists, lists are kind of hard to deal with uh, in the Bible because context plays so much into how we understand it. So this word in other passages could be used of or is used of uh, all wrongful desires of a sexual nature. So that would, that would include things like homosexuality and things like that. All wrongful or errant or aberrant sexual desires uh, or unbridled uh, desires of a heterosexual sense. The other way in which this word is also used are those who are driven by their passions in any one of a number of areas of life. And so could, could he be talking about those who have erring sexual desire? Well, absolutely, that would apply to that. But could it also be applied to not just that, but also to those who are controlled by their passions, that, that they have a huge uh, sail in their life, for lack of a better term, and wherever the winds of their passions blow, they are carried away by it. Yeah, certainly so. Peter O'Brien says this word can be used of a person who's allowed him or herself to be dominated by their emotions and their feelings. Have you ever talked with someone who are there, you, you ask them about why they did what they did or why they think what they think. And they say, I just, I feel this. And you're like, okay, but, but truth. And they're like, yeah, but I feel this. I'm not debating that, but truth. And these feelings or passions drive their life. And as long as it feels right, they think it is right. And you're like, no, Actually, that's the big bummer about us being sinners. Things that shouldn't feel right do. That's a major problem. You might say, but I, I was born this way. I don't even doubt that. Pray to God that he would transform you in the inner man. Our feelings, brothers and sisters, do not determine what is true. Do feelings have a place in our life? Yes, God gave them to us. Are all of them in accordance with reality? No, which is why Disney has destroyed a lot of lives by saying, follow this wretched thing that's deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Follow that thing. You're like, no, man, test that thing by God's word. And when it is errant, that is a, a really clear gauge to where I have idols in my life. So our feelings, as Pastor Brian so, so wonderfully puts it, hopefully I don't misquote him after saying that. That'd be a huge bummer. But our feelings are tremendous gauges, terrible guides. They help us diagnose what's in our heart. They shouldn't be um, the compass by which we steer our lives. So, 
Paul says these, these erring passions or being passionate in a, in a driven sense where you are, uh, in your own mind, at least a victim, put that to death. Fourth word he uses, <coughs> evil desires. Paul says these evil desires are to be put to death. Now you might say, well, okay, evil desire, what does it say in the Greek? Uh, he took the word evil and he put the word desire right next to each other. That's what it says in the Greek. So, desiring the things which God in his word says is evil. I know that's like really straightforward. Painfully straightforward. Are there not things where you're like, I want to pursue this? And God's word says, yeah, no, that's, that's wicked. Paul says, put that to death. Don't rewrite God's word in accordance to fit your wants and wishes. Don't say, well, it must be right because this is who and what I am and how I feel. Like, no, pray to God to transform you and shape you and mold you and make you more in the likeness and image of Christ. Those desires that are towards evil need to be things that are put to death waged war on you might say well that's hard yes yes it is Uh, i'm not going to argue that any of these are easy sadly as one uh, author peter o'brien puts it he says evil desire is a manifestation of the sin which dwells in the natural man and which controls him it reveals his carnality his separation from god and his subjection to divine wrath Rather than saying that those desires, those wants, wishes, emotions, and passions are the things that determine truth, what we ought to do, here's what the Christian would do, is say, God's word and what he's revealed to me through his word is what's true. And when I come into conflict with it, it is not wrong. It is always right, and I'm always the one who's wrong when, I, when and where I differ with the word of God. Every single time, Christian, the word of God is primary. And then the last of the first set of five, and you might be like, whew, all right, number five's not that bad. And covetousness. You might be like, there's a brutal list, one, two, three, and four. Covetousness, not that big of a deal. He actually separates this one from all the others and says, oh, covetousness, And I think knowing that we might have exhaled a sigh of relief goes, oh, and by the way, let me tell you the other word that it goes by, idolatry. Covetousness is not a small matter, beloved. You're like, well, I know it's the 10th commandment. Thou shall not covet. So I know it's one of the big 10. You shouldn't do it. But but what, what is it? Well, coveting at the heart of it is craving to have more, or grasping after, or self-seeking acquisition. You might say, well, you've just described America as one of their greatest pastimes. Yes, I have. And uh, especially with the advent of, like, Amazon, that learns the things you like, and puts those ads up where you're like, I didn't know I needed that. Now I need it. Scary good how, well, it's gas on a fire of covetousness that none of us need, right? Paul says, 
Don't, don't explain that away. Don't make peace with covetousness. Don't, don't turn a blind eye to it. It's actually idolatry. And it's idolatry in the sense that we so often, when it comes to coveting, it is to look or gaze upon with the eye or the mind something that I believe, if added to my life, would make me either more happier and content, or, and this is the, maybe the tougher one to, to stomach, or safer. Don't we often, with the things we covet, we're looking for things that make us safe or we believe will make us safe, or we believe will bring comfort. And if you just start to think through the things that, when threatened, I don't feel safe. And if I were to only have it, I would be safe. I'll give a a very easy example. Maybe you have a number in your mind where you're like, you know what, if I had that in the bank, I would be safe. Really? I'm not saying that we should be fiscally irresponsible. I think we should be fiscally responsible. But that does not equate to safe. You can be wise with your finances that God has given you, but that number does not mean I am therefore safe all of a sudden. That doesn't mean that I no longer have to trust God for either my welfare or my children's welfare. That is a number in a bank that could go poof overnight. Yet how many times do we want and whittle at it in our mind's eye? Oh, it's sneaky, isn't it, Christian? There's only one that can make you safe. The Lord Jesus Christ. And whether the number in your bank account is great or small or in between, whether you have the wish list or wants list on Amazon Christ is the only one who can bring safety and security to his people. This is, if we were to just diagnose the heart here, we are far more influenced by our culture than we think. If we could just be really, really painfully, like instead of amen, ouch men, kind of, Honest. We're shaped by it. And just like we can look back in history and we can see uh, cultures and peoples and even Christians with those times, peoples and cultures, and we just say, how? How, ca- how? how did they miss that? I mean, a popular one that we like to pick on um, is... The times and cultures and places where Christians dwelled, and I, I, I hope it's not a scandalous thing to say, but well, if it is, I guess. They lived in times where slavery was prevalent. And we look at them and we're like, golly, how? I mean, how? There will be Christians, if the Lord tarries, that will look back on us and say, my goodness, How? They were Christians too, second Londoners. A covetous, idolatrous people. These are to be taken 
very, very seriously, brothers and sisters, and, and I'm, I'll just tell you right now, we ain't finishing by 2.15 if we're going to do all of it. So we will bump the second half to next week. I've never done this before, but it's new territory. So look at Paul's rationale behind uh, the, the reason why these things ought to be put to death. Now, it's desperately serious. Now, just like a parent's warning, I've used this before with my children and, and they, uh, uh, my parents for some odd reason. They like their house kept at a chilly 83 degrees with that wood fire piping hot. And what do kids want to do with a wood stove? They think the key to happiness, joy, and fulfillment is to touch that thing. And as a parent, tyrant that I am, I tell them, do not touch that. And they gungus moo and complain, and here is God to you as child, saying, far more dangerous than a wood stove. Here's the danger. Here's why these things need to be put to death. Look at Verse 6. Verse 6 says, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You and I do not need a fuller explanation than that. Now, he will, in, in kindness, give us more next week, God willing, but <coughs> we don't need more than that. Paul says, The right, just, proper, full, terrible, Wrath and justice of God, like a freight train, is rumbling towards these things. Have nothing to do with them. These are the things, among others, that wrath was laid on Christ for you. He bore that wrath of God that verse 6 mentions on the cross for all who are in Christ. All of the ways we've been impure. All of the ways our hearts have run around and through the world wanting and lusting and desiring. He bore that wrath. Why then, and this is where we need to do real stock in our own hearts, why if I'm a Christian who's been rescued from wrath towards those things, why would I go back and play with that? Why would I, would, if, if I would say, God saved me from wrath because I did this, and he's plucked you from it. Why would we then go like a dog back to vomit and return to the thing we were saved from? Brothers and sisters, it makes no sense. And I say that as a, as a senseless sinner myself. I say that as someone who, just like you, has moments where we we. We believe the lies again. We believe, as we'll get to next week, that anger in this moment really will just win the day. It'll really set my house at peace. It's not true, by the way. That's, no, that doesn't happen. So, 
These things are the things which God's holy righteous wrath is, is coming towards. And judgment day is a, is a, it's a certainty that cannot be averted, avoided, delayed, or evaded. The judgment of God is coming. Now for those outside of Christ, that day will fall swift, terrible, and unexpected. For those in Christ, we have had, as it were, in a sense, our judgment day. The day of Calvary was a day of judgment. The day of Calvary was a day of wrath. The day that Christ laid down his life was when he drank down the cup of wrath that we rightly deserved for things that are found on this list. Paul says, Christian, you've been saved from it. Don't go back. Put those things to death. Lay them low in the dust. He knows by nature of who and what we are that these things are lively and in need of putting to death and that we love them and that they are hard to put to death but they need to be put to death nonetheless. I actually think it's one of the major reasons why God in wisdom puts Christians in community with each other so that when you have moments where you begin thinking, you know what, I would be happier if you have brothers and sisters say, that is a lie from hell, literally. And then for you to be able to tell them when they start to think, you know what, I would be more secure if you could go and say, I know where those lies come from. And you've been set free from that. And you not only don't have to follow the old masters anymore, you must not. That is lived, that's part of the life that is lived out of the newness you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, I don't want you to leave this place. Well, I do want you to leave and, and repenting of ways in which we've not done this, certainly so. But I want you to have a settled sense of hope and joy that God has set you free from these things. And that in his grace and by his power at work in your life, by means of the Spirit and the Word, these things truly can be put to death. You should go forth from this place, from this text, saying by God's grace and empowerment and in the life that I have in the gospel, I can wage war on the sin in my life. I've been set free. I've been forgiven. I've been delivered. Oh God, would you continue to lead me in your ways. You love me. Lead me in ways of life and lead me away from paths of death. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we confess that we desperately need your help. We confess that we've wandered from your ways like lost sheep. That we've done things we should not have done and we've not done things that we ought to have done. 
Oh God, not a one of us will make it through this passage or the next without the pinch of conscience reminding us of when and how we've done things. But oh God, help us to preach your gospel yet again to ourself that there's abundant forgiveness with you and that there is strength to put these things to death. And so we pray, O oh God, that you would be at work among us and that we would be putting these soul-destroying, dangerous sins to death and that we would lovingly help one another. Lord, thank you for your patience and thank you for the strength and the grace that you give. We pray this in our Savior's great and mighty name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.